0: Well, good morning, and thanks for being here with us as we launch into this new series. Now, lots of people asked me along the way, Jason, are you sure that you really want to open this up to audience questions? Shouldn't we just pre-script the questions and make it appear like these were the questions that people asked? might be easier, but I said, I don't think that's very authentic. I don't think it's real, and I've always said I want to be a, a pastor of a church that's not afraid to tackle the difficult stuff. And so for the next couple of weeks, that's what we're gonna do. Um, and what I want you to know is, I wanna remind you of what Paul said in the beginning. On the back of the chair in front of you is a QR code. If as I'm talking today, something pops in your mind, you're like, I have a follow-up question I would love to know. Scan that QR code, submit your question, And Chase and Paul and I and Dave, Dave's going to read us the questions. Chase, Paul, and I will take a stab at trying to answer your questions today. Now, I do need you to understand, one, we're not going to read your name out loud. It will require your name, but we're not going to read that out loud. Two, I don't know is an acceptable answer. All right, so there you go. So that's where we're at. So with that said, here's our first question of the series. How do you engage in a calm, patient Conversation with another believer you respect, who believes the church should fight for LGBTQ rights. OK, maybe we should have went to prescripted questions. <laughs> I want to be honest, I think there's a lot going on in this question. I think there's actually two questions here. The obvious question is, how do we have hard conversations with people we love and respect about any hot topic in a calm and productive way? That's question number one. That's the obvious one that's here. There's a question below the surface that I think we have to answer as a church. And that question is, how is the church supposed to love and value members of the LGBTQ community and not compromise our interpretation of Scripture? And so today we're going to answer that question. And I'm going to invite you back next week, and we're going to dig into that how do you have hard conversation question. So I know some of you are already like, oh, I'm checked out. I can, we can just get up and leave. I don't want to hear this. I want to invite you into this conversation. I know it's not comfortable. Trust me. I know. I'm the one up here with the microphone. It's not comfortable. I'm also on the internet. Terrifying. But it's a question we have to wrestle with, that we have to be able to answer. And to give myself some help, I want to recommend to you a book called Messy Truth. It's written by a guy named Caleb Kaltenbach. If you've read Messy Grace, which was his first book, there's no slide for this one. um, This is his personal story. He is a pastor of a church that is Not affirming of same-sex marriage, but he grew up with two lesbian moms and a gay dad. And this is his book about how the church should embrace and love and care for people in the LGBTQ community. He's brilliant. Much of what I'm going to say today is based on his research and the work that he has done as we've wrestled through that. So as we dig into this, I have some facts I just want you to think about. And these are facts. Our church has a new mission statement. Connecting everyone with Jesus, community, and purpose. This is who we want to be. A place where everybody, no matter what your baggage is, what you're struggling with right now, can come and hear who Jesus is. Out of that, we have a core value that says unassuming authenticity because we genuinely love people the way they are, not the way we want them to be, the way they are today, in this moment. We want to love them. Fact three. of LGBTQ teenagers aged 13 to 24 reported thinking about suicide last year. 20% of all transgender and non-binary youth attempted suicide last year. And 60% of all LGBTQ teens who wanted mental health care were unable to get it. Last fact for you this morning. The command that Jesus gave the church was love, and it had no restrictions. I want to let those truths sit. I want you to let them feel the weight of those facts for a minute. Because I think they shape how we engage in this conversation. And then I want to invite you into a story. I'm going to read the beginning of Messy Truth to you. It's a little bit long. Bear with me. We tried to retell it. It's not the same. So I'm just going to read it to you. What should we do? The question hung heavy in the air. Three days earlier, I had preached at this church's weekend services. For weeks, I had been consulting with the church leadership. Now they and I looked at each other with confused expressions. I glared at the conference room whiteboard in hopes that ideas and words from previous discussions would help. But no silver bullet answer could alleviate the ambiguity we all felt. We discussed scenarios the group was facing and I tried to give guidance, but the circumstances that led to what should we do question was a next level discussion. You see, earlier that year, two married lesbian couples with young kids began attending the church. This would have sent shockwaves through most churches, but this church already had attendees who identified in some way as LGBTQ. And the sense of welcome in the community was real. The church was ethnically diverse and multigenerational. And because the leaders encouraged dialogue, attendees held ver- various biblical perspectives. So despite the church's conservative stance on marriage, the two families felt a sense of belonging. They felt loved. But after a few months of being in community in the church, the four women agreed that marriage was a covenant between God, one man, and one woman. They had approached a staff pastor and asked a hard question, should we divorce or stay married? Perplexed, the staff member just stared at them. If you're curious, this is not in seminary curriculum. Breaking the awkward silence, one of the women continued, We're not quite sure what to do. We decided to go to a staff member because we trust our leaders. Another one of the women looked at the staff member and observed, You're still not saying anything. Are you worried about us having sex? My wife and I don't even have sex anymore. The revelation didn't simplify things. Trying to get back to the main point, they expanded on their original question. If my wife and I divorce, can we keep living together as long as we don't have sex? Finally, the staff member confessed that he needed to think about the situation and that he would pray for them. Probably a good move. The two families agreed to meet with him again after a couple of weeks, and that's how one week later I found myself in a conference room with the staff member, some of the other leaders on the team, and a whiteboard full of ideas that weren't really helping Us figure out what we should do. Letting go of my desire to be an expert, I began to ask questions, two of which immediately came to mind. What does Scripture say about sexual intimacy and relationships? And what does it mean to be above reproach in this scenario? I was barely able to voice these questions before the first opinion hit. They should just divorce, said Sarah, one of the leaders. Huh? I was a little caught off guard. Divorce, she stated louder. Isn't that what the couple was asking about? It's simple. Is it, I ask? I'm not saying they should or shouldn't end their marriage, but the word divorce makes me wince. They aren't really married, she said, as if she were pointing out the obvious. My eyes widened. Um, Yes, they are. They're not in what you and I would call a traditional marriage, but according to the government and their love for each other, they're married. The reality sank a little deeper and silence monopolized the room again. Look, I said, addressing Sarah, I'm not trying to debate with you or anyone else like you. Or anyone else like you. I believe God created sex to be expressed in marriage between one man and one woman. More silence. I'm not suggesting what these couples should or should not do. I continued, "I'm not saying we should proceed with. Ca- I'm saying we should proceed with caution and conversation. These are people's lives." Just then, a board member named Robert asked, "Should we use unbiblical methods to solve extra biblical situations?" Before we could dive deeper into that question, the children's pastor asked, "And what about the kids?" they were adopted from the foster system. Should they be split between two homes when they've had stability for a few years? Another good question, I commented. Mark, a board member who had appeared uncomfortable most of the night, looked frustrated. He made the timeout signal with his hands. Am I hearing what I think I'm hearing? Paul, the lead pastor, asked, what are you hearing, Mark? So far, Sarah's the only one who's on the truth side of things, he said, pointing at Sarah, who was now looking at the table with uncertainty. I understand the need for love, but are we really going to recommend these women stay married? No one said that, Paul uttered. Mark looked at me and asked, Isn't that what we want? Grace and truth. What should we do? If you were a member of that church's leadership team, what would you do? Let me first say that until we can genuinely love people the way we are, we will never get the opportunity to wrestle with this question beyond a hypothetical level. We have to create an environment where everyone is welcome so that they can hear the truth of who Jesus is and his love for them. We have to trust God to work. This book is full of stories I find unimaginable and maybe even unbelievable. Unbelievable. But isn't that exactly what God does? The unimaginable and the unbelievable. He creates change in people's lives we could never imagine. So let me ask you a question. For you as an individual, for us as a community, are we ready to be a community where people like these two women are given margin to pursue Jesus. Some of you might ask, well, what would that look like? I think it starts by welcoming tension. It's tense. I don't know if you've noticed, this room is silent. You guys aren't even wiggling in your chairs today. Tension can be a hard thing to live in in the moment, but tension can create beautiful things. Maybe one of of the most amazing things that's created by tension is a suspension bridge. You can see it on the screen behind me. Now, those two green posts are held in place by tension put on them as that red wire presses down and out to hold them in place. If you took the red wire away, you put any weight in the center of that bridge and it collapsed. That might be the most horrifying thing I've explained to a roomful of Caterpillar engineers today. I just want you all to know that, right? But that's the way that bridge works. Those two pillars are two truths we have to hold to. The first one of those I think is best defined in two questions. Who created everyone and who died for everyone? Genesis one twenty seven says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. If we call ourselves followers of Jesus, no matter how we choose to identify ourselves, God says we are all created in his image. Every one of us resembles his likeness. He knit individually, uniquely his image into each and every one of us. This means we believe that everyone no matter what they say about themselves was created in God's Resemblance. And that means everyone is worthy of respect and dignity and value. I don't care who you are, that's true for every one of us. The other truth is the other question is who died for everyone? John 3.16 says this, for, those who, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Everyone. Romans 8.3 says, He sent his own Son in a body like the bodies we sinners have and in that body God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his Son as a sacrifice for our sins. I know we know this, but Jesus died for all people, for people who believe like we want them to, for people whose sexuality is different than ours. Jesus died for everyone, and he doesn't require us to clean ourselves up before we come, He simply stretched out his arms and gave his life to show us what love is you see one of our flaws as human beings is we tend to believe that Jesus only died for people who sin like us you see if you sin like me I can empathize with your struggle I can empathize with how that sin affects your life and I can see why Jesus would die for that But if we convince ourselves that that's true and Jesus didn't die for people who sin differently, we've short-circuited the gospel. And maybe worst of all, that allows us to categorize people who sin differently into groups like those people and them. And we devalue them and we devalue Jesus' ability to love them. We have to keep those two things, those two questions, as one of our posts. The other post that we have to hold in tension with that is that God desi- God's design for sexual intimacy. And so these two things are standing. What is God's design for sexual intimacy? Genesis two twenty three through 25. At last, the man we know as Adam exclaimed, This one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. When we make marriage between one man and one woman as a God-designed fact, we create a second pole, a pillar that has to be held in tension. But when we understand this is God's design, we get a more holistic view of what God wants for us. You see, Jesus never talks about same-sex attraction, but he talks an awful lot about sexual sin and marriage. Listen to Mark seven twenty and 23. This is Jesus speaking, and then he added, it, was, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. From within, out of a person's heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defiles you. Look at that list. That's pretty extensive. I might go on record and on a risky limb and say, I don't know if there's anybody in this room who hasn't committed at least one of those in their life. But church, I believe one of the ways that we have failed the LGBTQ community is by focusing on their sexual sin and not on our sexual sin. You see, Jesus uses the word porneia. Porneia is like the trash can word for all sexual sin in the Greek language. You can lump it all into that one word. All of it's covered. Adultery, pornography, lust, sex outside of marriage, homosexual relationships. It's all lumped in that one word. And it's all put in the same list as pride. Pride. So let's remember that when Jesus calls this out, he's not just calling out this one sexual sin. He's calling out everybody. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He directs us back to God's design. In Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 9, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. That's what they do if you read the Gospels. They're trying to trap him on this topic of divorce. And can a man divorce his wife? And they say, well, the law says he can, and this is Jesus' response. He, meaning God the Father, wrote this command only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one, since they're no longer two but one. Let no one split apart what God has joined. Why is this God's design for sex and sexuality and marriage? I don't know. But what I do know is that each one of us has to choose. We have a choice to follow our own experiences, our own emotions, and to make that truth. Or we can surrender our will to God's direction and guidelines. But church, whichever one you choose, that will be your God. If we follow God's guidelines for sex and marriage, God is God. If we follow our own emotions and our own feelings and our own experiences, that becomes our God. But the truth and the beauty of a suspension bridge God created everyone. God died for everyone. God has a plan for our marriages and our sexuality. They stay in tension with each other by that red cable that goes across the top. And that cable in our image today is love. Without love, those two pillars collapse on each other. Anytime we find tension, anytime we get stuck, those two things collapse. Collapse. I might posture that the church's problem is not its theology, but its lack of love. Listen to all the times Jesus commands us to love, or he tells us about the Father's love. We read the first one already, for this is how God loved the world, John 3:16. Love each other just as I have loved you, John 13, 34. This might be the most in your face. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. If you love me, obey my commands, John 14, 35. Love each other in the same way I have loved you, John 15, 12. This is my command, love each other, John 15, 17. I stayed in one gospel because I didn't want you to think I was repeating things Jesus said in different places. But the last one is Matthew 22. The second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Church, I want you to understand these are not my words. They're not even Paul's words. They're Jesus' words. And if we are his followers dead to sin, then we are called to die to ourselves and our desires and obey his instructions. When we do this, we're not only obeying Jesus, but we're giving value and dignity to everyone who disagrees with us. Kaltenbach says it this way in his book Christians need to think more deeply about people, not differently about theology. We need to think more deeply about what it means to love each individual, not worry that our beliefs are exactly right, or not worry so much that our beliefs are exactly right. So, how do we create a space where this tension can grow? I'm going to start here today, and this is where we're going to cut it in the middle a little bit and invite you to come back next week. We create that tension by welcoming everyone. Even a cursory glance at Scripture shows that the church is not for the insider. Now, I know some of you are like, oh, he's going to tell us it's for the outsider. It's not for the outsider either. Church is for the glory of God. We worship, we study scripture, so God gets glory. Listen to Paul's words in Philippians 2, 9 and 11. Therefore, God elevated him, Jesus, to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? The glory of God the Father. Jesus commands his disciples to go to all nations and make more disciples. If those two things are true, then every Sunday there need to be people in this room who are at all stages of faith and belief. People who don't know who Jesus is. People who have been following Jesus for a while and maybe we sin a little less now. And people like you and I, who come into this place every week and realize, you know what? I didn't obey God perfectly this week. And I need to be here. I think that's actually what we see all throughout the New Testament. We love Acts 2.42, right? The church gathered together. They taught the apostles' teaching. They had communion. They prayed for each other. They shared with those in need. Have you listened to Acts 2.47? All while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of All people, each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. If there was nobody in that church who didn't know who Jesus was, how are people getting saved? How's God getting glory? If you know your Bible at all, 1 Corinthians, you know the Corinthian church is a little messed up. 1 Corinthians chapter 2-14, to 14, everybody's like, oh, that's all about tongues, right? It's about the gift of tongues, how they use tongues. It confuses all of us. But in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul gives some really insightful instruction about what our worship should look like. He says, if you praise God only in the Spirit, how can those who don't understand you praise God along with you? How can they join you in giving thanks when they don't understand what you're saying? You'll be giving thanks very well, but it won't strengthen the people who hear. Even so, if unbelievers or people who don't understand these things come to your church meeting and hear everyone speaking in an unknown language, they're going to think you're all crazy. That's the Bible. That's not Jason's translation. That's the Bible. People who don't believe, people who still have messed up lives, need to be in this room. Because when they're here, we get to celebrate what God celebrates. Keep in mind the God we worship, who wants honor and glory from the church, is the one who celebrates when one who was lost gets found, not that 99 stayed in the sheep pen. Scripture proves this to be true. Scientific data does too those suicide rates we talked about amongst LGBTQ students, they drop in half if they're part of a loving community. I want you to understand what I didn't say. Not part of a community that agrees with them. If they're a part of a community that loves them, those suicide rates drop in half. Kaltenbach says this in his book, welcome means fostering a community in which everyone feels and believes they could be a part of that particular community and that regardless of their past or present, they are treated with dignity because of who created them and who died for them. Church, let me be clear. We may never connect anyone to Jesus until they know that they can belong and be connected in community here. Now, I know this topic makes us uncomfortable. I didn't ask this question. You did. <laughs> but part of the uncomfort is because we miss what can happen when we embrace the discomfort. Discomfort. I'm going to ruin the book for you. I'm going to read the end of it. We debated long and hard over whether we should read the end of it. I'm going to read the end of it. As soon as I get to the right page. Oh, that's awkward. Bear with me just a minute. We'll get there. We'll get there. Here it is. Near the end of the meeting with these church leaders, I helped them determine some suggestions for possible ways forward. One, take more time to pray. Two, go over what the Bible says about relationships and sexuality. Three, don't make a decision until you have certainty that only faith provides. Four, examine the financial and insurance needs of each individual. So here's how it ends. Eventually, both couples ended up divorcing. They decided this on their own and were not manipulated into doing so. Even though the couples divorced, they remained living together as friends and roommates to keep consistency for their children. When it came to sexual temptation, the women said they hadn't been sexually intimate in years. Today, both couples and their children are still a part of that church. When people who relate or identify as LGBTQ request spiritual guidance or have questions about faith and spirituality, the church sends them to the four women for counsel. Was their outcome perfect? Nope. Is their situation messy? Sure is, and so is ours. Are their lives easier? No, Jesus didn't promise peace, or he promised peace, not ease. Is God using them more than we will ever know? Christians need to think more deeply about people, not differently about theology. As we close, I want to share a passage of Scripture with you. Romans 9, 25, and 26. This is what Eugene Peterson says in the message. I call nobodies and make them somebodies. I call the unloved and make them beloved. In the place where they yelled out, you're nobody, they're calling you God's living children. Do you believe that God can do the unimaginable? One question for you as you leave today. What are you willing to do to keep and build influence? And you fill in the person's name. Let's pray and we'll get to your questions. Dear Heavenly Father, God, first of all, thank you for loving us when we were unlovable. Thank you for making each of us in your image. Thank you for sending your son to die for us when we didn't deserve it. God, this is a complicated issue. We don't fully understand it. but we know that we're called to love, to care, and to value your creation. And so God, help us to do that well. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom to know how best to help everyone connect with your son. We pray all this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. At this point, I'm going to welcome Dave and Chase and Paul up on stage, and we'll see how well we do at answering your questions.
1: As we get ready to dive in here, I will remind that we have a 10-minute hard stop time, Dave. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yes,
2: I'm, I'm looking at that. So. Sorry. Again, these are your questions, and so let's just get started. Should Christians attend a same-sex wedding if they are invited?
0: I'll take that one. Um, I think it's got to be a matter of conscience for you. You have to decide what's right for you. I would tell you for me, uh, I have a lesbian uh, family member who got married last year. We were not invited to that wedding, but we knew it was coming, and Corey and I talked, and we decided if we were invited, we would attend. We would have attended because the ability to maintain that relationship and to continue to share the gospel and Jesus' love with them was more important than what how others might interpret our attendance at that wedding. I would be there because not being there would fracture the relationship.
1: I agree with that. I mean, so this one hits close to me as a former student pastor. I have, I have former students that um, would identify. And so the question that I was asked is like, hey, if they get married, are you going to be there? And after talking to church leadership, I made the decision, yeah, I would be there. I would not perform it. And I think we all agree on that. I would not yep. be doing the wedding. Um, and here's why. Uh, actually, Coltenbach actually mentioned this in Messy Grace to prequel to this book. Um, my job is to be an image bearer of Christ no matter what my decision is. And so, by being there, that's telling that person or that couple, no matter what they go through in life, they can have a conversation with me. That does not move my conviction an ounce. Because I am there to have that relationship, not just tolerate someone, but to actually have a meaningful relationship with them. Yeah. I agree. (laughs) Way to Very go good. out on the limb. Hey.
2: You're welcome. Right. Right. And again, just observing time, this will probably be our last question today. So how do we see and love them well without making them feel like they are a project to us? And the second part of this is how do we ask God specifically to open our hearts and minds to do this well? Yeah, that's
0: a fantastic question. And that's actually a huge part of what we're going to get into next week uh, as we talk about how to have the conversation, how we prepare ourselves, what that conversation would look like, and how we reflect on those conversations afterwards. So fantastic question. I'm not trying to avoid it. Maybe these guys have something they want to add, but I'm going to tackle that
1: head on next week. Well, then let's go ahead and go to another question then, Dave. All right, one more. Are people
2: born LGBTQ, or did it, is this something that develops over life experiences?
1: Let's just cut it. Uh, pass. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> Paul, I think you have... Paul, Paul took this one first. I'll let Paul take this one, yeah. All right, so
3: um, th- this is not for me. I went to a conference a few years ago uh, w- with a pastor who does a lot of work in that community, uh, and he described it some way I thought that was really helpful to think about. A lot of times in this debate, uh, Christians will argue, well, it's a choice, you can choose differently, and, and people in that community would argue, well, I was born this way. And he reframed the thinking a little bit and talked about there may be a genetic disposition to some of that, uh, somebody might have a genetic disposition, just like someone who would have a genetic disposition maybe to alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's a genetic disposition, but then based on that genetic disposition, then there might also be some, like, family trauma or something that happens in their past that that leads them down that road. And then they find loving community, and they feel cared for in in that community, uh, it's the LGBTQ community. And by the time you get to the fourth box, which is basically the choice box, their choice has shrunk. very, very tiny, and so it feels like there's not a choice any longer because of all these other circumstances, and at that conference, what the pastor talked about is like the gospel informs all those compartments, right, so the gospel comes in and, and brings healing to the genetic stuff, God, uh, Jesus comes in and brings healing to the, the trauma of the family background. Jesus comes in and provides a loving community and then that last box, the choice box, ends up becoming bigger. That's one way I've thought about that. Mm. It doesn't really answer the question. People still uh, who are in that, in that in that community, it's still a really hard thing, but that's one way I've, I've heard about it framed.
1: And I think I would add that everyone on this stage, none of us are professionally trained at any high level with cognitive development. Amen. Um, so, as, So when I look at this no matter what, say there's a predisposition, say there's not, that doesn't change who God is. And so with that, the whole point of Jason's sermon today and probably even next week, the key here is people need to belong before they believe. Mm-hmm. So. so, oh, thank you.
0: So I'm a 12-year-old boy <laughs> who can really only like deal with tension for so long and then I need some kind of like comedic relief. So as we're sitting up here asking questions, all I have staring at me from Dave's board is Oreo Blizzard. So Dave, my last question is for you. Oreo Blizzard, what's it mean and why does it say double stuff on one of those buttons? I
2: find it interesting that we're going here. But anyway, okay. So he's talking about my pedal board. This is where all my sounds come from for my guitar. So anyway, my initials are DQ, Dairy Queen, okay? And so I just named all of my settings after blizzards. And so uh, this one's set on the Oreo blizzard patch. I have one for the big cookie. I also have one for double stuff. So I'm just saying.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If you ever wanted to see behind the curtain, there you go. I have one other important announcement for you. I'm sorry. I needed the comedic relief. Um, If you want to talk about this more, starting May 8th on Monday nights from 7 to 9 o'clock, We're going to meet right over here in the Highway 456 room. And we're going to read Caleb Coltenbach's book, Messy Truth. Two chapters a week. Read it before you come. We'll come and talk about it. My life group's going to be talking about it. And we said we wanted to create a place where everybody could talk about it. So you're welcome to join us 7 to 9 over there starting May the 8th. You'll hear more about that in the weeks to come. Thank you for being here. God bless. And we can't wait to see you next week.